You know, I don't know about you, but as uh, I watch the, uh, the death toll in Turkey and Syria pushing almost 50,000 people now, man, my heart just breaks, just breaks for what's happened there and what's going on. And I wonder before we get into the message, if, if you just join me in a prayer for those families in that part of the world. Lord, we worship in a comfortable environment here in Indianapolis right now, but we lift up many whose lives have just been torn apart by this devastating earthquake. Uh, it's hard to believe that there would be rescue missions going on this long after, but people still hold out hope for a loved one that might still be breathing. And we know that the, uh, the number of families and individuals impacted by this devastation just extends with more and more uh, numbers rising of those who've lost their lives. Watch over the rescue workers, provide healing in every way through the generosity of people around the world, provide food and uh, supplies that can aid everyone in whatever place they're in right now. And now tune our hearts and our minds to a series that puts us in a very different place and very different thoughts, but very relevant for what we all deal with in our own worlds that can be so up and down with those we live with around us. So give us attention to the story we consider now and help us to find meaning in our everyday world and how we can represent you well and find happiness for our living. In Jesus' name, amen. At the end of the 19th century, the biggest names in entertainment were Gilbert and Sullivan. They were a partnership that wrote comic operas. Gilbert wrote the lyrics, Sullivan wrote the music. And they experienced incredible success in their work together. Some of their hits were the Pirates of Penzance, HMS Pinafore, many, many others. They worked well together until <laughs> they bought a theater called the Savoy. Sullivan felt like the carpet ought to be changed, and so he just ordered it. When Gilbert saw the bill, he hit the ceiling. They got into a huge argument over it. Gilbert took Sullivan to court. He said, I didn't have any say in this. You should have to pay for it all. The relationship started going downhill, but they kept working together. Gilbert wrote lyrics, sent them by messenger to Sullivan, who wrote the music to go with it. When the operas were performed, they would walk on stage from opposite sides to take their bow to the audience, but they never looked at each other. For the rest of their lives, they never spoke again. It is possible, isn't it, to be on the same team, but to treat others as if they're opponents. We're completing today a series on relationships called tug of war. And over the past few weeks, Pastor Javon has done a great job helping us think about how every relationship has given take to it, like a tug of war. Tension, tension is an asset in a healthy relationship. Last week, he helped us think about how healthy relationships are also not about winning every battle. Healthy relationships involve humility and surrendering. But today, we conclude this series 
with an idea that sort of causes the analogy to fall apart just a little bit. Because at some point, in a healthy relationship, for it to be fulfilling and rewarding, you have to get on the same side as the other person. And you have to pull together. So we're going to think today about what helps us work together in relationships. And we're going to use a story from the Old Testament in the life of King David that is not a very well-known story. It involves a peculiar 16-month period in David's life before he became the king of Israel when he joined sides with Israel's feared enemy, the Philistines. He was taken in in a positive way by one of the commanders of the Philistine army, Achish. Achish allowed David and all of his fighting men to live in a Philistine village called Ziklag. Why would David do that? Because in Israel, the place where Saul was the king, on the same team, Saul treated David like an opponent. He tried to have him killed. He was insanely jealous of him. He hunted him like an animal. And the only way David felt like he was going to survive this is if he retreated and got away from it. It was getting too exhausting. Have any of you ever been in a relationship that just flat got exhausting? Anybody sitting near somebody right now who is exhausting you? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Just know that you're not alone. David had to escape Saul just to survive, and he felt like the one place I can go where Saul probably will not come after me is in the land of our enemy, in the land of the Philistines. So he retreated there. And, and Achish was obviously kind to David. Now, why would he do that? David was a feared enemy of the Philistines because every day... David would go out on raids and he would bring back the loot from a village he raided and he would give it to Achish. So it was a very profitable relationship for Achish. But David was deceptive. This map might help us understand the deception. It perhaps is a little hard to see, but in the bottom left part in the, in the Philistine region, the yellow region, is the village of Ziklag, where David and his men were living. David was telling Achish that he was raiding Israelite villages just a little bit to the north and east, when actually he was going in the direction of the Egyptian border and the land of the Amalekites. Now, why would David do this? Why would he, why would he make up a false story about who he was raiding so that Achish would think that David has become an enemy of his own people and he's one of us, that, that we can trust David because he really is with us. Now, the story gets even more peculiar when a showdown battle occurs when the armies of Israel under Saul have lined up for a, a battle with the Philistine army. 
And all of the commanders of the Philistine army are are at Jezreel. And they see David and his men riding up on their horses to fight with them. David is going to fight against his own people. But the Philistine commanders look at Achish because they know he's the reason that David and his men are there. And they they call Achish over. And they say, whoa. What are those Hebrews doing here? Now, understand, that was a derogatory term in that time. To call somebody a Hebrew was a derogatory term. It was like calling them a bunch of scavengers. Have you ever noticed when we don't like somebody, when somebody does something that offends us, we have to make assumptions about their character? We have, to, we have to call them things that sort of lower the esteem of those people, those, those bunch of scavengers, those rioters, those looters, those troublemakers. Because if we can lower their nobility, then we become more right. So Akish is not going to cross wires with the commanders. So what he's got to do now is go and tell David that I, I trust you. Uh, you've been trustworthy to me. But, he says to them, go back now and go peaceably. There are all kinds of relational dynamics going on in this story. David and Saul were on the same side, but Saul treated David like an opponent. And because David had been befriended by Achish, it now put distance between Achish and the other Philistine commanders, but he's not going to cross them. He's going to stay on his side. So now he's got to come back and tell David, you need to go back. There are a lot of great lessons here to think about what it means to work together with people we find ourselves at odds with. We're having a tug of war with them. And one of them is this. When we get in that place in a relationship, when, when we are at a distance from somebody we love and care about, we all need an Akish in our lives. We all need somebody who will say to us, you know, it, maybe it's a good time to go back. Not somebody who tells us what we want to hear. Not somebody who agrees with it. Have you ever found that? When you're at odds with somebody, you need to find people who agree with you. Who tell you you're right. Who only listen to your side of the story. But then they say to you, well, you've got a right to do that. You've got a right to feel. You should stand your ground. You should demand your rights. We all need people who won't tell us what we want to hear. They'll they'll be objective. They'll listen. Maybe they'll tell us what we need to hear and say, you know, quit, quit demanding your rights. Quit stating your case. Quit pressing the cause. Just, Just take a pause. Step back. I told this story some time ago. Some of you may remember it. So if it's a repeat, then it's a good repeat. Uh, Tony Campolo, a famous uh, Christian author and speaker, tells a story about speaking uh, for a chapel service at this 
very fundamental evangelical Christian college. And he had done this before, so he knew their routine. He gathered in a room behind the chapel where some of the students, all male students, would come and pray for him before the service, and they lay hands on him. And he said, now, in the, in the tradition of this college, there's no such thing as a short prayer. I mean, the prayers will go on and on and on. He said, the, the longer they prayed, the heavier their hands got. And he would just kind of go further and further down. He said, there was this one guy who started praying, and he didn't pray for the service. He didn't pray for Tony Campolo. He started praying for his friend, Charlie Stolzfus. He said, Lord, you know Charlie? You know he lives off exit 33 off the interstate. Down at the end of the service road in the red house on the left, Tony Campolo said, surely God knows where this guy lives. Get on with the prayer. He said, Lord, you know my friend Charlie's going to be leaving his wife and his kids today. And it's a mistake, Lord. I pray you would send somebody to intervene. Send somebody to help him. I mean, Tony Campolo's like almost to the floor. Finally, the prayer ends. He goes in. He conducts the service. Gets in his car to leave to go home, heading out toward the interstate, about to turn on it. There's this innocent-looking guy there, thumbing for a ride. He pulls over. He says, where are you going? He said, well, as far as you'd let me ride with you. He said, get in. They started going down the interstate. He said, my name's Tony Campolo. And the guy says, my name's Charlie Stolzfus. And Tony Campolo thought, no way. No way. He turned to him and he said, I know who you are. You're leaving your wife and your kids today. I'm taking you home. Guy's eyes got like that wide. And then when he turned off exit 33 and onto the service road and drove to the end of the service road and pulled in his driveway, now his jaw dropped open. He said, I want you to go in and tell your wife that Tony Campolo's with you and I'm going to come in and have a conversation with both of you. He said, how do you know who I am? Tony Campolo said, God told me. So he watched the guy through the window go in and whisper in his wife's ear, and then her eyes got big. And to make a long story short, he went in, sat down, spent two hours talking to them. The guy decided not to leave his family. He stayed with them, started going back to church, renewed his faith, answered a call to ministry. And when I heard Tony Campolo tell this story, he said, and today he's a pastor of a church out west. (laughs) Sometimes... The people who say the quirkiest things that make us go, that person's just a knucklehead. Might be the very voice of God we need to listen to. And the people who have the courage to not tell us what we want to hear, but what we need to hear is God's way of talking to us. Sometimes, sometimes we all need people in our lives who will not tell us what we want to hear so that we can do what we need to do. Achish simply told David, go back, go back to Ziklag. But I want you to think about the significance of that. Think of the favor he did to David. Had David gone into battle with the Philistines, he would have never been able to go back. That would have been it. He would have been an enemy of Israel for the rest of his life. Sometimes the people who seem to be against us, 
aren't really. They actually are helpers. They might not tell us what we want to hear, but they'll tell us what we need to hear. This leads to another important part of the story. And it has to do with David's ruse, his deception. Because what appeared like David was fighting his own people was actually supporting them. He wasn't raiding Israelite villages. Imagine Saul hearing reports of this, that, that one of the leaders of the Philistines reports that David is attacking our own people. How easy would it be to react to such news? But David wasn't. He was still on the side of Saul. Sometimes we come to see that what appears to be opposition is actually support if we don't get reactive. If we don't get reactive. Have you ever been in a situation where it was so easy to make assumptions of what other people said, what they did, only to find out you, you weren't right? I remember years ago when our girls were smaller, when they were small, they're adults, and Susan and I would sometimes get into squabbles over chores at the house. And one of them was rolling the garbage bins out to the street. If it was a rainy day, if it was a cold day especially, I would find that it had been left for me to do every time. I would come home after a long day of work, many times evening meetings, not getting there till 10, 11 at night, and realize, oh, I've got to get the garbage bins, take them out to the street. Well, one time, I drove in the driveway, and the garbage bin was in front of the garage door on my side. <laughs> I couldn't even drive into the garage. I'd have to stop my car, get out of the car, and by the time I did that, well, guess what? Sure, I'm going to have to move the thing to the street. And I thought, so that's how we're going to play this, huh? <laughs> I pull into the garage. I go inside, and with real tenderness and compassion, I said to Susan, can you not do your part around here? Or something of that kind of sensitivity. She said, what are you talking about? I said, you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the garbage bin. You left it in front of the garage door, so I would have to stop. I'd have to get out. I'd have to move it. She said, what are you talking about? I said, come on. And she thought, and then she said, no, that's not right. I remembered earlier today that tomorrow's garbage pickup. I wanted to move it before you got home. I started moving it when I heard one of the girls scream from inside. She was hurt. I went in to take care of her. I forgot to come out and finish getting it to the street. I asked if the jury would disregard previous testimony. <laughs> Didn't work. Let me tell you two things that make all the difference in the world when it comes to getting on the same side as somebody we're in a tug of war with. One of them is to develop the art of stopping. Develop the art of stopping. That when we start looking at someone as an opponent, before we begin to react, Stop. 
It's like in football when a player chases one of the opponents out of bounds and then tackles them or shoves them to the ground. Many times when you ask the offending player, why did you do that? Did you, did you know, did you realize you were out of bounds when you did that? Many times I'll go, yeah, I knew it. I mean, did you realize that if you do this, you're probably gonna get a flag and cost your team 15 yards? They will say, yes, of course, I knew that. Well, then why did you do it? What did they say? I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. I almost had them in my grasp. Let me tell you, what's true on the football field is true in relationships. If you are trying to catch somebody, you're gonna find yourself out of bounds a lot. And when we feel ourselves in a relationship, making assumptions about other people's behavior, why they did this, why they didn't do this, what they're really trying, what message they're trying to send us, and we find ourselves crossing a line, getting out of bounds, developing that ability to just stop and say, you know what, I might not know the full story here. I need to stop and hold on. And that brings up the second thing we can do when it comes to getting on the same side as the other person. Stop so that we can name who the real opponent is. What is the real opponent we're pulling against? And the truth is, our opponents are seldom other people. Our opponents are problems and issues that need to be addressed, not people. Two parents might have a, a child in trouble and they can start getting crossways with each other about the best way to handle it. One parent has one way of dealing with the problem. The other parent has another way. And before you know it, the parents are in a tug of war with each other, making one another the problem. And they gotta stop, they gotta stop and say, no, we're on the same side here. What are we pulling against? We are pulling against anything that would harm our child. We're pulling against our child going through a problem. We must be together and understand that the more approaches we have to the same problem, the greater the likelihood that we'll find an answer. The more ideas, the different way of going about it, the greater chance of success that we might have. If we can keep from being reactive, we can find that what feels like opposition isn't always that, that way. It's support. We just have yet to understand and to see. That brings up <clears throat> one last observation about this story, and that's to think about what happened as a result of this experience in David's life. Because he did pause, because Achish said to David, don't go and fight with us. That was the beginning of his journey of eventually going back to his people where he would become king of Israel, where he would fulfill his destiny. And not only that, where he would hear God's promise that one day the Messiah for God's people would be one of his descendants. The Messiah would be a son of David. 
It just reminds us that we seldom experience our greatest possibilities in life without the hard work of having to figure out how to get on the same side with another person. Almost always, if we're going to figure out our greatest potential in life, the possibilities God has for us, somewhere in that story are many stories of having to do the hard work of getting on board with other people. Martin Luther King Jr., in his letter from a Birmingham jail, said, all people are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. Our future depends on getting on the same side with other people. The founder of the United Methodist Church was John Wesley, a priest in the Church of England who lived in the 1700s. The only reason John Wesley was ever born is because somebody went back. His parents, Samuel and Susanna, were both very strong-willed, independent thinkers. And they differed in politics. Samuel was a conformist. He believed in the unity of church and state and the rule of the church, and he supported the reign of William and Mary, the new king and queen who were co-sovereigns of the throne of England. There were some disputes about how they came to be recognized. Susanna was a non-conformist. She believed in the separation and she did not acknowledge the rightful reign of William and Mary. So one night at the prayer before dinner, Samuel closed the prayer with a blessing upon the king and queen and Susanna did not say amen. When he asked her why, it led into a huge argument with Samuel ending the argument by saying, if we're going to have two kings in this house, we shall have two beds. And he got up and he left. Left the house for months. Now, we don't know what happened. I wonder, I wonder if Samuel had an Achish in his life who maybe came along, put his arm around Samuel and said, You're acting like a dunderhead. It's time to go home. Just go back. Whatever motivated it, Samuel went back because he decided it is an absolutely ridiculous thing to let politics come between people you love. I thought you might clap on that one. That's okay. (laughs) He goes home. He goes home and he gets together with Susanna. They reconcile and nine months later, John Wesley was born. And 35 years later, the Methodist movement was born. You could say that we're all sitting in a Methodist church today 
because somebody was willing to go back and to reconcile and understand that future possibilities, future potential that can change our lives and the lives of untold numbers of others happens when we figure out how to get on the same side with other people. Our future depends on it. Isn't that what God does for us? Doesn't doesn't God initiate reconciliation and get on the same side with us and come to us in our sin and our disobedience and our willfulness and pull with us so that we can recognize the real opponent, that the real opponent is sin and hate and everything that would divide human community. And God pours that same love he has for us into our lives so that we can love others in the same way. So in that faith and in that hope, let's conclude not only this message, this series, with a prayer of blessing for all of us in all of our relationships. Let us bow our heads for a moment. And let me lead us as we close today. And Lord, I pray first for all of those who are in healthy relationships, that we may continue doing the things that keep these relationships strong. Give us a desire to keep investing, keep protecting, keep improving our relationships so that we would believe there's no greater return on an investment than what healthy relationships provide. And then, Lord, I pray for those struggling in a relationship right now, maybe spouses or a parent and child, or greater family members, or a work relationship, or friend, give us the desire and courage to go back, to acknowledge any fault of our own, to express our hope for better relationship, and show what we're willing to do to bring about such hope. I pray for those not able to go back to someone from whom they've been estranged. Perhaps it's no longer possible or prudent. Help us not to hold on to our wounds so as to injure other relationships, but heal us and help us know that even a bad relationship can make us better, can offer lessons that improve our current and future relationships. And finally, I pray for all of us that we will seek to make better the lives of others rather than the other way around. For when we desire to do this, we become bigger people, better people, more beautiful people, For you are a God who displays such love toward us. You did not leave us alone in our sin, but you came back. You sent your son into the world to be on our side, to pull with us, so that all that would pull us down, sin, hate, evil, would one day be destroyed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.